This is DW News, live from Berlin. The crisis over Ukraine escalates. The US moves 3,000 troops to beef up its presence in Europe. Russia denounces the deployment as destructive and likely to increase tensions even further. Also coming up, a taste of life beyond the pandemic. The UK and Denmark are lifting coronavirus restrictions in spite of high case numbers. I'm Rebecca Ritters. Welcome to the program. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says he plans to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss tensions over Ukraine. Scholz has been facing pressure to take a tougher stance on Russia, with critics accusing Germany of being out of step with its allies in tackling the crisis. He's now trying to reassure people that Germany is pulling its weight. Of course, I have also spoken with the Russian president, and of course, we are carefully preparing everything that needs to be done. I will now be going to the US, and I will be continuing the conversation on the necessary issues in Moscow soon. It's important that the policies of the European Union and NATO are coordinated, but it's also important that the decisions that we take are the result of sound preparation and hard work. Meanwhile, the U.S. is mobilising 3,000 troops to reassure its allies in Eastern Europe. The soldiers will not be sent to Ukraine itself, but to Germany, Poland and Romania, an attempt to deter Russia from invading Ukraine. The Kremlin says the troop build-up will only increase tensions. Washington has decided to stop calling an invasion imminent, saying Russia's intentions are unclear. Another day, another increase in tension over Ukraine. The U.S. is sending 2,000 soldiers to Poland and Germany, while another 1,000 move from Germany to Romania. The current situation demands that we reinforce the deterrent and defensive posture on NATO's eastern flank. President Biden has been clear that the United States will respond to the growing threat to Europe's security and stability. Our commitment to NATO, Article 5, and collective defense remains ironclad. The Pentagon made it clear that no U.S. soldiers will fight in Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said diplomacy comes first, but no options are off the table. We only think about peace. We only think about the return of our occupied territories and only through diplomacy. We will not give up a single piece of our land today. We will not give up our territories, no matter what the price. Despite Zelensky's reassurances, others are preparing to do battle if it comes to a fight. Former boxing champion Vladimir Klitschko signed up for the army. His brother Vitali accompanied him in a show of support. We are not weak. And any aggressor have to understand if they do it activity, aggressive activity against Ukraine, he have to pay huge price for that. We're ready to fight. Leaked documents confirmed by the Pentagon revealed the backroom diplomatic efforts to avoid war. The US offered Russia access to inspect key military sites in return for a de-escalation. Russia says it has no intention to invade Ukraine, but these pictures released by Russia's defense ministry showing joint combat drills with Belarus send a clear message. Russia is not backing down.
And DW correspondent Nick Connolly joins me now from Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, Nick, NATO Gen General Secretary Jens Stoltenberg has said that Russia is sending uh, 30,000 more troops to Belarus. If that's indeed the case, is that a significant escalation? It definitely is, Rebecca. Yesterday we heard from Moscow, from the Defence Ministry, they said that those uh, Russian, Belarusian military exercises that had indeed been on the cards for some time now would not exceed 9,000 um, soldiers from both sides. And as such, international observers would not be invited to uh, check those. So if indeed these numbers are so different and so much bigger, then that is a big deal, especially because lots of these exercises seem to be taking part directly on NATO's front door in the western part of Belarus, near Poland, Lithuania, we heard in recent weeks concerns from Lithuania that this is potentially three, four times bigger than any kind of major exercise they've ever seen before in that part of the world. And even more uh, worrying for them, the perspective that those Russian troops may never go home back to east to Russia, that they may stay there in Belarus as an opportunity to you know, a leverage for the Kremlin and a permanent show of force. And I think you just have to compare the numbers here. Those 3,000 troops announced by the White House, of, of which only 2,000 are actually new to Europe. Um, this is obviously... Um, hugely um, larger in terms of the scale. Definitely, huge difference there. Uh, now, another angle of the story, of course, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is uh, due to be in Kiev today. What does Ukraine's government want from that visit? In a word, drones. Uh, the Turkish-built Bayraktar military attack drones are something the Ukrainian army has wanted for a long time and they've already received some, using them for the first time in uh, the autumn of last year um, after they say they were attacked by the Russian-backed separatists. That was something that worried the Kremlin. They showed to be very effective. They've also been used by uh, Turkish ally Azerbaijan in a war last year against um, Armenia and this really could be something that significantly changes the relative strength of Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia and obviously a lot of unhappiness in Moscow that those have been sold to Kiev in the past. Um, Erdogan trying to kind of uh, sell himself as a mediator here. He offered to mediate between Kiev and Moscow. The Kremlin uh, said no for now, but definitely a sense that Turkey is trying to uh, make its mark on the diplomatic field here in this part of the world, which Vladimir Putin, let's be honest, sees as his backyard. TW's Nick Connolly speaking to us from a very snowy Kiev. Nick, thank you. Now, a roundup of some other stories making world news today. Shares in Facebook owner Meta plunged by 20% in after hours trading on Wednesday, knocking a massive $200 billion off the company's value. The fall came after Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg told investors that Meta expected first quarter revenues to dip due to competition from rivals such as TikTok. Rescue and cleanup efforts are underway in Ecuador's capital Quito after floods caused a landslide. At least 24 people died after the rainfall, the country's heaviest in nearly two decades. A dozen people are still missing. Authorities haven't ruled, uh, haven't ruled out the danger of further landslides. New Zealand will begin to reopen its borders in phases starting at the end of February. Fully vaccinated citizens and visa holders from Australia will be allowed in first. Under the new rules, vaccinated citizens entering the country will be allowed to quarantine at home instead of at a managed isolation facility. 
Well, the United Kingdom and Denmark are among the first European countries to lift most of their coronavirus restrictions. Despite relatively high case numbers, their governments have decided that the virus now poses less of a risk to citizens and public health systems. But while many are hoping this could be a step towards life beyond the pandemic, some businesses are choosing to keep taking precautions and experts are warning the virus is still unpredictable. Packed pubs in London as people meet for a drink after work, just like they did before the pandemic. A cherished tradition revived even as the coronavirus is still wafting through the air. If we're being eased into that now and it's and it's working, I think it's I think it's okay and I think it's happy. It's lovely coming out without having to move. <laughs> well, I've had my three vaccines, so you know. I do, have you had COVID, SJ? I had it really early on, right, so. and I'm fully vaccinated with my booster, and I do feel very safe. Almost all restrictions in the UK have been lifted. The vaccination rate is high, especially among older people. New infections are decreasing and hospitals are admitting fewer patients, but some still urge caution. It has always demonstrated its ability to surprise us. Now, there are some that have this idea that in some way viruses tend to evolve to become less dangerous. That's actually not based on any good historical evidence. And it's perfectly possible that another one will come along that is more severe. Businesses are now free to write their own rules. At this hair salon, employees are supposed to still wear a mask. We're doing so to make you feel more comfortable. If you'd rather not, that's absolutely fine as a client. Sit down, don't wear a mask. Again, whatever makes you happier. The government is already planning its final phase. From mid-March, those with COVID-19 will no longer have to self-isolate. Meanwhile, in Denmark, restored freedoms are being welcomed too. Designers Søren Le Schmidt and his team are making final preparations before Fashion Week starts in Copenhagen, mask-free and test-free. I am so happy that we can come together again and celebrate fashion. Many Danes are relaxed about restrictions having been lifted a second time. More than 80% of the population is double vaccinated. More than 60% has had a booster. There are far fewer patients in hospital ICUs. But the number of new infections remains high. A problem for schools and daycare centers, which are struggling to stay open due to severe staff shortages. The government is warning people not to underestimate the virus in spite of the freedom. That's why, here too, many businesses are voluntarily maintaining some precautions. For more, I'm joined now by Paul Hunter in Norwich. He's a professor in medicine and infectious diseases at the University of East Anglia. Professor Hunter, welcome. Thanks for joining us. As we just heard, Denmark and the UK uh, have very high vaccination rates and that's why they're able to lift restrictions. But we've also been hearing all along that vaccination alone isn't enough. So how do those opposing viewpoints come together? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems is that we're conflating both infection with actual severe disease. And, And to a large extent, the role of vaccines is not that good at preventing infection, although it does prevent a substantial proportion of infections. But what vaccines are very good at and remain good at, even with new variants, is preventing severe disease, preventing hospitalizations and preventing deaths.
And so at some point, we have to uh, accept that this virus isn't going away. It's going to be with us for decades to come. But hopefully we won't see the same, and I think it's unlikely that we'll see anywhere near the same severity of disease, the number of deaths and, and the number of hospitalizations that we have. And you know, so we ultimately have to come to some sort of balance, equilibrium with this virus, because we will, the other coronaviruses typically cause infections every four years on average. So that is still a very high number of daily infections that we're likely to see for decades to come. But Indeed. we won't necessarily see the severe hospitalizations and deaths. Which is great news and obviously due to the vaccines. Now, Germany and Austria, for example, have far lower rates of vaccination than most of Western Indeed. Europe, really. Austria um, has just introduced a mandatory vaccination uh, system and many in Germany want the same here. Do, do you think the mandatory vaccinations are a good way out of the pandemic? Uh, Personally, I, you know, I, think it, I think everybody should have the vaccine. I think uh, particularly healthcare workers, I think it's, it's a moral obligation on, on if you're a healthcare worker to have the vaccine. But at the same time, personally, I'm uncomfortable with forcing people to have any form of medical intervention. And we've seen in, in the UK the, um, uh, the likely backpedalling of the government's decision to enforce vaccination in healthcare workers because to do that would actually ultimately cause more pressure through a loss of substantial numbers of staff. So, yeah, everybody should go out and get vaccines, but that doesn't mean to, if they are not yet vaccinated, but that doesn't mean to say I, I personally support compulsory uh, vaccination. All right, Professor Paul Hunter, thank you very much. Paul Hunter, Professor in Medicine, Infectious Diseases and Epidemics at the University of East Anglia. A major snowstorm is causing widespread disruption in parts of the United States, but some are revelling in the cold weather. A polar bear in a Chicago zoo can't seem to get enough of the fresh powdery stuff. Hudson, as he's called, is clearly in his element. The state of Illinois and parts of northern Indiana are expecting up to 45 centimetres by the end of Thursday. At least somebody's enjoying it. This is DW News. Here's a reminder of the top stories we're following for you. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has said he'll meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss tensions over Ukraine. And the US is deploying additional troops to Europe in a, slow, in a show of solidarity rather with Ukraine and its NATO allies. Well, that's your news update for now, but stay tuned. Business news is up next and there's a lot more world news on our website. That's DW.com. I'm Rebecca Ritters. Thanks for watching. right-wing extremists attack. Women's rights regressing again worldwide. Lesbian couple raped and burned in South Africa. People with disabilities more likely to lose their jobs in the pandemic. Black Lives Matter protests shine a spotlight on racially motivated police violence. Same-sex marriage is being legalized in more and more countries. Discrimination and inequality are part of everyday life for many. We ask, why? 
because life is diversity. Make up your own mind. DW, made for minds. $200 billion in market value vaporized. Facebook's loss in users and a handful of other problems sent parent company Meta's shares plunging. We'll take a closer look at what's going on at the social network. Also coming up, India will try to spend its way out of the pandemic slump. We'll talk about the finance minister's budget plans to our correspondent in Delhi. And we'll take a look at the backlash the EU Commission is facing after labeling gas and nuclear power as sustainable investments. I'm Chris Colburn Berlin. Welcome to the program. Shares in Facebook owner Meta plunged by around 20% in after-hours trading on Wednesday, knocking a massive $200 billion off the company's market value. The fall came after Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg said that Facebook has been losing roughly 1 million daily users globally between the last quarters of 2021 and warned investors that revenue growth is expected to slow due to competition from rivals such as TikTok. If the stock doesn't rebound before trading resumes on Thursday, it will rank as the worst day in the company's 10-year stock market tenure and one of the biggest one-day falls of any company on record. Let's bring in DW's Christy Platson here. She's been taking a closer look at the story. Christy, for the first time in history, Facebook is losing more users than it's adding. How much of a problem is that? Right. Well, if we consider the absolutely brutal fall in share prices that we've seen, I would say it's something of a problem for Meta and Mark Zuckerberg, or at least it's a problem for investors. Uh, I mean, uh, we have to remember that Meta's business model relies uh, quite significantly on advertising revenue. So fewer users logically means fewer people to advertise to. And this comes on top of the fact that um, last year already, this company was hit very hard by an update to an Apple privacy policy, which makes it easier for iPhone users to opt out of having their data tracked for advertising purposes. So uh, we can see that this business model that this company has relied on for the last 18 years is uh, really being attacked on multiple fronts. That's may not go away on its own. Christy, uh, Netflix and Spotify have also posted poor growth figures. Are we seeing a trend here? Right. Well, I think we're seeing a couple different things happening right here. Uh, one thing we have to consider uh, is how the pandemic is affecting these companies. Two years ago, uh, when the pandemic really took hold, we saw a lot of uh, a lot of places going into lockdowns. And then we saw a really major boom in the use of, uh, of digital products, of streaming products, social media, as everyone was stuck at home. Uh, now, two years later, that's just not the case. Economies are opening back up. People are going out. And I think to some degree, there's some fatigue with screens, with 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 doing everything digitally. People um, can't be relied on to uh, use these products in the same way they could last year. So these companies can't uh, look to can't expect the same growth that they've seen since the pandemic began. Um, and we also have to remember that these companies, it's not like they're making shoes or making a car, something that's going to wear out that you need to replace. It could be that they've started uh, saturating their market and they're going to have to look at other strategies for how to make money. Christy, Facebook says it's expecting revenue growth to slow uh, in this quarter. Is there a plan to offset this prediction? 
Right. Well, these uh, these shocking figures that we've seen today are actually not really much of a shock to Meta. Already last year, we saw them talking about uh, declining user growth, about problems with this iPhone privacy uh, policy update. Um, and this is why we saw a major rebrand uh, at the end of last year uh, um, when Facebook rebranded as Meta, became a metaverse first company. Uh, we also saw in their figures reported this time for the first time they've spun off their reality labs. Uh, this is the segment responsible for this metaverse push into its segment. Um, so this is really the, where this company sees its future. Uh, Bloomberg has said that this could be an $800 billion uh, market opportunity, and Meta's betting on that as well. DW's Christy Platson, thank you. And we apologize for the quality of the line there. India is hoping to spend its way to once again becoming the world's second fastest growing economy. The Indian finance minister's latest annual budget includes a $100 billion in capital expenditure. That's around double the amount India was investing before the pandemic. The money, partly funded by debt, aims to sustain economic growth, which is expected to be around 9% for the current financial year. It includes heavy investments in infrastructure. Let's take a closer look at these plans with DW's Charu Kartikeya in Delhi. Uh, good to have you on the show, Charu. Uh, more public spending, that's often the go-to move for governments when they're trying to spur growth. Is it likely to work for India as well? Hi, Chris. Well, it remains to be seen whether this will work or not. But uh, at this point of time, many analysts are of the opinion that the amount that has been allocated this time for uh, in, in, uh, in terms of an investment push is not really adequate given the size of the problem at hand. In fact, uh, some analysts have said that if you... Uh, if, if you adjust for inflation, then even the overall size of the budget this time has not gone up significantly as compared to the uh, previous uh, year's budget. So that means essentially that it's just capital expenditure which has been announced and not overall expenditure in the budget. Uh, no other scheme was announced to give uh, more uh, to give push to the economy. Uh, no large infrastructure spending has been announced. In fact, uh, several uh, schemes that some analysts and uh, some industry persons also had expectations for, none of those, those came through. So it remains to be seen whether uh, these, uh, this, this amount that has been announced will really give uh, the economy a fresh uh, impetus. Chris. Uh, Jaru, Indian households are grappling with rising costs of living. At the same time, there's the problem of unemployment. Uh, the economic slowdown has pushed India's unemployment rate above the global figure in five of the last six years. What is the government going to do about that? Well, uh, if you look at the speeches and the statements that have been made by the finance minister, the prime minister and various other senior ministers and bureaucrats of the government, uh, the capital expenditure uh, is something that they are banking all their hopes on. They, they are hoping that this capital expenditure that they have announced uh, will uh, give rise to jobs, will give an impetus to industries, will bring in more investment. And uh, that's essentially the center of, of all, their, all their hope. But uh, the problem remains that uh, uh, several analysts are of the opinion at this point of time that employment schemes were necessary and they have not been announced. In fact, there is a rural employment uh, guarantee scheme that is already uh, functioning. Its allocation has not been increased and uh, no uh, uh, increase in allocation has been announced for sectors like agriculture, which generate massive employment. Chris. Charu Kartikeya for us in Delhi. Thank you for the moment, Charu, but do stay with us.
Because apart from her budget, the Indian finance minister Nirmala Sitaraman also announced plans to introduce a state-backed cryptocurrency labeled the digital rupee. Take a listen. Introduction of a central bank digital currency will give a boost, a big boost to digital economy. Digital currency will also lead to a more efficient and cheaper currency management system. It is therefore proposed to introduce digital rupee using blockchain and other technologies to be issued by the Reserve Bank of India starting 2022 and 23. The Indian finance minister speaking there. Charu Katikeya, back to you in Delhi. I mean, other policymakers in different parts of the world have been somewhat hesitant when it comes to introducing uh, state-backed digital currencies. Why is India moving ahead with this? Chris, if you uh, look at what the finance minister said and what the other ministers and bureaucrats have also been saying, that there was uh, uh, that there appeared to be a perception uh, in the government that since cryptocurrencies, Indian investors are going big on cryptocurrencies, and uh, the government is a little wary about digital uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, so to provide a sort of a safeguard, a cushion against the dominance of cryptocurrency on the market, they brought in this government-backed digital currency, which is going to be essentially a legal tender. It's going to be digital based on the blockchain, blockchain technology, but it's going to be digital, uh, digital tender and it is not going to be a cryptocurrency. So to, to provide a sort of a, a counter to the growing trend of uh, cryptocurrency in India, uh, this appears to be the reason behind uh, the launch of this digital rupee, Chris. Uh, Charu Katikeya for us in Delhi, looking at the plans of the Indian government to introduce a state-backed digital currency. Charu, thank you for your analysis. And now to some of the other global business stories making headlines around the world. Turkey's official inflation rate has hit its highest level in 20 years. Figures from the Turkish statistics agency suggest prices rose by over 48 percent last month compared with a year earlier. The inflation is being partly blamed on President Erdogan's unorthodox belief that low interest rates are the solution. Petroleum giant Shell has posted a massive profit for 2021. It made just over $20 billion as resurgent economies drove up demand and prices. Oil hit its highest price for seven years in January. Shell's profit compares with a loss of more than $21 billion in the previous year. The European Commission has been working on standardizing what is considered sustainable, in part to help make investors make green investments. So its move to include include gas and nuclear power in its green energy taxonomy is creating a backlash from both environmentalists and European lawmakers. A protest on Wednesday against the EU decision to class nuclear energy and gas as sources of green energy. The protesters say gas shouldn't be included because it's a fossil fuel, while nuclear poses a risk due to accidents and the disposal of waste. Proponents say the energy sources are essential bridge fuels to reduce reliance on coal and oil while working to build renewable energy infrastructure. The classification is a cornerstone of EU environmental policy. The aim is to guide investor fans to genuine green energy projects and away from greenwashing or damaging investments. 
The EU admits including gas and nuclear is imperfect and has added more stringent conditions. So on nuclear, the Delegated Act, if you like, rewards improvements and advanced technology in safety standards and waste management. When it comes to gas, there are strict conditions, including limits on emissions, and that facilities must replace high-emitting plants, as well as being compatible with low-carbon fuels. All new gas and nuclear projects will also have to be approved by 2030 and 2045, respectively. This compromise is supposed to please the bloc's biggest economies. Germany is a proponent of gas, and France, nuclear energy. While Brussels had hoped to set new global standards with its green energy label taxonomy, its implementation has disappointed many environmentalists and member states alike. And here's a reminder of a top story for you at this hour. Shares in Facebook owner Meta plunged by around 20% in after-hours trading on Wednesday, knocking a massive $200 billion off the company's value. The fall comes after CEO Mark Zuckerberg warned of loss of users and slowing revenue growth. That's our show for now. For more, check out our website at dw.com business. I'm Chris Coburn in Berlin. Thanks for watching. Have yourself a successful day. India, getting rid of dams, and legal rights for rivers. Water scarcity is at an all-time high, and people demand radical solutions. Corporations claim they can handle the crisis, but at what cost? Eco India, next on DW. What people have to say matters to us. That's why we listen to their stories. Reporter, every weekend on DW.